and um, God guiding human authors to record his word without error. So we don't, we don't ever want to take that for granted. We want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we want to tremble at God's word. So let's go to the Lord for, in prayer that God anoints uh, me to preach his word today. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I thank you once again for the people that are here. And we know that we don't have a lot of things that a lot of big churches can offer. Uh, but what we do have, um, the people that are here today are here for that. And that is your word, your truth. They're here to worship you. They're here to pray together and fellowship with believers. And they're here to learn from your word, your truth, not the fake news that is so prevalent in our culture today. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take me, the, the fallible man, and that you would anoint me with your spirit, that you would control my thoughts and my words, and that um, you would fill me with your spirit so that uh, I would proclaim your infallible truth and that I would not lead anyone astray. And I pray, Lord, that you remind us all that the, the authority is not the local pastor or the pastoral staff or, or um, spiritual leaders or wise men and wise women, that the, the infallible authority is your word. You are the infallible, perfect God, and you proclaim your truth to us, your perfect truth in your word. And so uh, I pray that uh, you give each and every one of us the courage to test what they hear today with your word. And if it doesn't pass that test, we would reject it and hold fast to what your word proclaims. And Lord, I pray you open hearts and minds to receive truth from your word and empower us by your spirit to apply these truths to our lives so that we can be pleasing in your sight until that day when your son, the Lord Jesus, takes a stand upon the earth. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. Remember, Paul is telling uh, the Thessalonians to be watchful. And to be watchful means, you know, that God's given us warnings about how things are going to, you know, current events, how they're going to come about so that we would not be caught off guard uh, by Christ's return. Paul tells us we don't need to know the exact time of Jesus's return. I talked about that, the end time prophecies. God made them so vague that every generation would have to be watchful, thinking that Jesus could return in their lifetime. But he makes them so specific, the final generation will know for sure. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us to head for the hills until the Antichrist is in the temple, proclaiming to be God, and an image of the Antichrist is built in the temple, placed in the temple that has the power to breathe and to speak. And with AI and transhumanism, all those things sound like a, um, a, uh, a possibility in our day and age. But that last generation will know for sure. And we know the temple has to be rebuilt. Uh, but Paul says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And when everyone says peace and safety, then destruction will come. But though the world will be caught off guard, we believers are not in darkness. We're not ignorant. We know the signs of the end times. And so what does Paul tell us to do? And, you know, I would think, oh, okay, Paul's going to tell us to chart these things and this and that. And No, he, he, he says put on the breastplate 
of faith and love. Just keep trusting in Jesus, not only for salvation, but for guidance in daily living. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to, to guide you into, into God's truth and trust in God's word and live a life of love, loving God with everything you got through the power of the Holy Spirit and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we got to put on faith and love and faith and love in action is righteousness. So it's, it's our, what is our job? Our job is not to know the, the day or the hour of Christ's return. Our job is through faith and love, live lives of obedience to the Lord through his power and for his glory. And we must also put on the hope of salvation. If, you, if you're here today and you don't have the hope of salvation, if you're not trusting in Jesus for sal salvation, if Jesus is not your hope, you have no real hope. Okay, Jesus is the only hope this world's ever going to know. And uh, everything else is a false hope. And, um, you know, I, I preached that message at a Sunday evening service a few weeks ago, the arrival of Nietzsche's supermen, what the movers and shakers, the most powerful people on the planet Earth today, what the, the future that they're looking at. And they don't even start out with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God created man in his own image, so human life is sacred. They don't even start out with that. In fact, they discard that. And um, they actually think human beings are bad for the planet Earth. And then you pump all this data into AI, artificial intelligence, assuming that humans just get in the way. That's a recipe for disaster. Now, though... Many of the, um, uh, you know, they, they would consider themselves philanthropists like Bill Gates. Though many of these guys and gals in powerful places um, act like they really care about us, they're really, they're talking about exterminating human beings. Because if we serve them no purpose, then why not just get rid of us? And uh, even Elon Musk has acknowledged that that's the kind of garbage that is being spoken of at these meetings when the these uh, billionaires who control governments around the world. I mean, that's what's going on in politics in America today. There is a battle to to bring America down. We can't be part of a global state if the uh, American middle class says no. We like our standard of living. We like our freedom. We like our prosperity, and we don't want to give in to, to Marxist dictators throughout the world who are slaughtering their own people. And um, so, you know, we live uh, in, a, in a time of lies, and then people want us to hope in them. My, my hope's not in Bill Gates. My hope is not in Klaus Schwab or the World Economic Forum. My hope is certainly not in the guy in the White House, okay? And I pray for his health. Physical and mental health. The guy's not well. He should not be leading the so-called free world. I'm not so sure we're free anymore. Um, I hope. Your hope. Is in King Jesus. And the world can laugh. When we baptize people over there, they can laugh and say, well, that's really dumb. Last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper. Boy, that's really dumb, all these adults doing this this uh, childish type stuff. 
Well, Jesus said you need to have the faith as of a child. Just trust God and his word. But the world can laugh at us. But we have a hope. We have true hope. And his name is Jesus. And the world has no hope. And so, uh, Bill Gates, you got to do what you think you got to do. Well, I know what I got to do. I got to preach Jesus till he comes back. Okay? And, 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 you know, the world wants to shut us up. Okay? And there's ways of shutting us up. But the ultimate way to shut us up, to get us to stop preaching Jesus, just ushers us into his presence. So we preach Jesus till he comes back in glory. And, um, you know, we got to speak the truth in love. We got to love our enemies and pray for them. But the fact of the matter is um, we'd be lying to people if we could tell, you know, you have hope even though you don't have Jesus. No Jesus, no hope. Jesus is our hope. And, um, and so now we see that in verse 9, we're not, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, we are not appointed for wrath. In this context, wrath is it's God's, wrath means anger, but it's not like an explosion of anger. It's like, um, it's like someone being angry in a constant way. And God displays his wrath against sin. You know, Romans 1, and God's abiding anger. And uh, it says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, though current events may look bleak, though things may seem to get bad, we do not lose hope. Because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in King Jesus, and King Jesus promises us that he will deliver us um, from his wrath. Now, um, what I what I want us to look at, just a few passages here. Again, just as we saw the day of the Lord, Paul talks about the, the day of the Lord will come, and the day of the Lord, we see, comes after these signs in the heavens. The sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give us light, stars fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens are shaken. That happens immediately after the tribulation, Jesus says, but those same signs occur before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2 tells us that, okay? And it's, it's the same with, with God's wrath. Um, there, there are many Christians, many godly Christians, many Christians that go to this church that believe that God will deliver us before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation. Um, I hold to the, the view of the early church, the pupils of the apostles and their pupils after them, that the church will go through the tribulation period, that what we're protected from is God's wrath, which follows the tribulation period. Okay, And you'll hear other perspectives from this pulpit. Not everybody agrees with me. This is a non-essential Godly brothers and sisters can disagree on an issue like this. My concern is not that everybody becomes a post-tribber like me and thinks we're going to go through the tribulation. My goal is that all believers, whether we're pre, mid, or post-trib, and then there's, the, there's a whole bunch of Christians who don't even believe that Jesus is going to literally reign on earth. My goal is that all believers know 
that God's word says that if you desire to live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. My goal is that we're all willing and ready to suffer for the cause of the gospel. Okay? And, um, but let's look at these, these verses here. I mentioned Matthew 24. Let's look at that, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Jesus says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, some people believe there's a seven-year tribulation period. There is going to be a seven-year peace treaty if I'm properly interpreting Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, 70 weeks of seven years each. There's going to be a seven-year peace treaty. That might be when everybody says peace and safety and then destruction comes. But when you read the book of Revelation, it seems to be talking about the same three-and-a-half-year period, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, over and over again. So I actually think it's only the second half of that seven-year peace treaty, which the Bible calls the tribulation, okay? And, um, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's when the Antichrist goes into the temple. We're going to see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God and demands that he be worshipped. Revelation chapter 13 says his right-hand man, the false prophet, will uh, build an image of the beast and cause people to worship it, but he gives it the power to speak and to breathe. What in the world is going on there? It sounds like holograms, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, all rolled up into one. Okay, and um, and then he's going to institute the mark of the beast, the 666 on the right hand of the forehead. Some think it's going to be a microchip. You can't buy or sell without it. And people say, oh, I don't think that the government's going to say you got to take this mark or this chip and you can't buy or sell without it. Oh, look at old uh, Mayor de Blasio, former Mayor de Blasio of New York. He was saying if, if you didn't have proof of vaccination, you couldn't buy or sell in New York City. So, so regardless of where you stand on vaccinations, um, the fact of the matter is that we have government leaders who think they could tell us, unless you take some kind of invasive uh, medical treatment, uh, you have no place in our economy. You have no place in our world. And... Uh, uh, and so Jesus says immediately, so this tribulation period where the Antichrist rules, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from, the, from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. But you have these signs in the sky, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the, the powers of the heaven shaken, and that occurs when? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay. Then look at Revelation chapter 6. Now you're dealing with the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, the sixth seal judgment. 
Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, and that reads, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now that seems to me, that's not something that's going to be duplicated. Those are the same events that happened in Matthew 24, 29 to 31, when? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand? So my understanding of the scriptures is that there will be this tribulation period, a horrible, horrible time in the history of mankind and that is going to be followed by the signs in the sky, which will be followed by God's wrath. God's wrath comes after the tribulation, not during it. Now, if that's the case, then what kind of wrath? Whose anger is it in the tribulation period? Look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. A lot of imagery in Revelation chapter 12. The woman here is the nation of Israel, and uh, the dragon is Satan himself. But Revelation 12, verses 12 to 14, and it says, and this is after, if I look at verse 9 first, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with them. They're going to get cast out of heaven by Michael the archangel and his, his angels. Don't buy into the false teaching that Satan and his demons are already in hell. Okay? Uh, Peter says Satan roams the earth freely, seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion. In the book of Job, Satan... Uh, appears with the other sons of God before God's throne room. And God says, you want to mess with somebody? How about my servant Job? Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. In the book of Zechariah, we find there in the book of Zechariah uh, that Satan goes into heaven and accuses Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest before God's throne room. So, so Satan and his fallen angels... Uh, roam freely, they have access into heaven, they haven't been kicked out yet till the last three and a half years before the return of Christ, and they can roam freely on the earth. It is only certain angels, big debate about who they are, there's only certain angels that are chained up in the abyss right now. And according to Revelation chapter 9, they might be the locusts who get released. But most fallen angels still roam freely on the earth and have access into heaven. Halfway through 
what we commonly call the tribulation period, though I only think the last half, the last three and a half years is actually a tribulation, but three and a half years before the return of Christ, Satan and his angels will be cast out of heaven. Then look at verses 12 to 14. Therefore rejoice, O, her o heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants. Uh, you know, rejoice in heaven because Satan's kicked out. Uh, and then uh, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon, that's Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she will be nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And if you've studied end-time prophecies, the time, times, and half a time is symbolic of the three and a half years, the 1260 days which the Antichrist will reign on earth. So that three and a half year period before the second coming of Christ, that is the wrath that mankind will suffer, but it is the wrath of Satan. The wrath of God does not come until after the tribulation period, and we're delivered from that. So I am one of those Christians, contrary to all my professors at Liberty University and pretty much all of them at Southern Evangelical Seminary and Veritas International University, I had to sign, I, when I would sign their statement of faith, I'd have to write down that I'm, I'm not pre-trib, and they had to give me a waiver to let me be a professor at, uh, at Veritas. Great guys, by the way, every one of them. I think they, I think they love the Lord more than I do. And, um, but uh, if my understanding of the Scriptures is correct, the church will be persecuted by the Antichrist, okay? We will have to make that decision. Am I going to stay true to Jesus or accept the mark of the beast? And it's real easy for us to say, oh, no problem. I'll, I'll stay true to Jesus. I'm telling you, you know, I mean, during the summer when I wake up in the morning, the first thought that comes to my mind, you could ask my missus. I'm not lying on this. Did I get up early enough to where McDonald's is still serving breakfast? And I could go through the drive-thru. Here's this spiritual giant, Phil Fernandez, who, you know, for probably the first thing that's going to come to my mind. If we end up living in the last days and I'm given the offer, take the mark of the beast or... Remain true to Jesus. You remain true to Jesus. You can't buy or sell. Probably one of the first thoughts that's going to come to my mind is no more McDonald's drive-thru. Okay? So um, it's easy for us to say how spiritual we're going to be. It reminds me of a, reminds me of a fisherman, a Jewish fisherman, telling Jesus, I'll, I'll never betray you. I'll go with you to, to death. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about, Peter? You're going to die me three times before the, the cock crows. And um, Jesus said, I prayed for you, that your faith will stand. And, um, um, and so all I'm saying is I think that we're going to be here on earth for the wrath of the Antichrist. And, um, and we got our hope of salvation is that Jesus spiritually saves us, gives us eternal life. 
but that the Lord Jesus is also going to save us. You know, God's wrath coming to earth starts immediately after the tribulation, and then his wrath goes on forever and ever. God's eternal wrath, if you suffer that, it's called the second death. That's the eternal lake of fire, what we commonly call hell. Then look at Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. This is after the tribulation here. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on, on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Jesus shed his blood for us, and his name is called the Word of God. Remember John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. Only one guy. It's called the Word of God. And that's Jesus, the God-man. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus brings the wrath of God. I think the bowl judgments, the, the seven bowls of wrath, they are falling as Christ is returning immediately after the tribulation period. And he has on his, on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You don't have to be a great expositor of God's word to know who the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords, okay? Just like Isaiah 53, Isaiah the prophet wrote that 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. You don't have to, Jesus' name doesn't have to be there. And everybody knows who it's talking about. So on the streets of Jerusalem, you can read that passage and say, who is this passage talking about? And the Jewish people will say, oh, that's easy, Jesus. And they'll say, well, you'd realize I just read from your Old Testament, from your prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And then they freak out. Well, then it's not Jesus. And they storm, storm away. But it's like, you don't got, I mean, Jesus has got a resume. You don't have to mention his name. If there were a bunch of demons having a, a council meeting and they were talking about Jesus, they don't have to mention his name. You'd know exactly who they're talking about. Pardon the English, but ain't nobody like my Jesus. Okay? Jesus and Jesus alone fulfills this passage. But when he returns, he returns with the wrath of God. So as your pastor, to the best of my understanding... I, you know, I don't have the whole Bible understood. I'm going against all what all my professors taught me over the years, professors whom I love to this day. Uh, but if my understanding is correct, uh, we will see the wrath of Satan on planet Earth. God will not evacuate us um, before the Antichrist comes to power and reigns and institutes the mark of the beast and demands that he be worshipped. Um, but God has promised us that we will not suffer God's wrath. And that's what Jesus will bring to earth when he returns. Now let me say this. 
uh, godly brothers and sisters, even, even here at this church, that disagree with me on this. I hope you're right. I don't like pain. I mean, you don't have to talk about, you do not have to talk to me. You know, like you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, man, you just read all the suffering. Even the early church fathers talked about horrible ways that the Christians were tortured and stuff like that. I mean, you just give me sciatic nerve pain, and I crumble like a little baby. So I'm not into pain. And um, my uh, medical doctors, experts in the field, have told me try to avoid pain as much as possible. And um, I used to say as a young guy, no pain, no gain before I'd start my workouts. Now I start a workout, and it's just like, okay, try to avoid injuries the best you can. Um, But as your pastor, I have to admit, my understanding of the scriptures is that the early church got it right and we will be here for the tribulation period. We will be persecuted by the Antichrist, but King Jesus has promised to deliver us from God's wrath, which Jesus will bring to planet Earth when he returns. And, uh, and so uh, we're not appointed for God's wrath. We will obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, but I believe that God's wrath comes after the tribulation. So at the second coming, Jesus will return to rescue his people, but at the same time he comes to rescue his people, that's the exact same time he brings judgment on the non-believing world. I don't think there's a, a seven-year gap or a three-and-a-half-year gap in between. So look at Second Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, And chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you know, it's, it's amazing. Paul spent so little time with the Thessalonians, yet he spent so much of that time talking with them about the end times that when he wrote letters to them, he had to clarify things because that's all they were thinking about, okay? So you really have to understand that when you look at the Bible, Uh, a very high percentage of the Bible is prophecy. Now, much of that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and the rest of that prophecy will be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming, okay? Um, But it's amazing that, you know, like when I first became a believer, all I wanted to do was study the end times, and I caught a lot of flack from more mature Christians saying, you got to study more than just the end time prophecies. And they were right, you know. All I wanted it to be was that smart guy who could figure out what was coming down and um, um, and didn't didn't really think about, hey, you know, look, he, uh, here's uh, one of Jesus' commands. Maybe I should think about, spend some time thinking about obeying that and and doing this and not doing that and and trying to become a man after God's own heart instead of trying to just figure out the end times. At the same time, I don't think you could say this guy spends too much time studying the end time prophecies. I think what you could say is he doesn't spend enough time studying other things taught in the scriptures. Okay. But, um, and I tell you, it was this, through study of the, I was looking for meaning and then studying end time prophecies. That's what brought me to the point where I was willing to come to Christ when the gospel was presented to me. But whatever the case, it's amazing that, First and Second Thessalonians, 
I mean, it talks about the end times just about as much as the book of Revelation does. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, Paul says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us. So he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring down punishment on those who oppose me and oppose my people, but I'm, I'm going to give you rest. You who are troubled rest with us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, what does he do? Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, that's God's wrath, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. You see, what he's saying is the same day that Jesus is coming to rescue his church is the same day that he's coming to bring his wrath down upon the evildoers, okay? And so what I'm saying is regardless of your view on the end times, you need to love Jesus so much that you are willing, if need be, you are willing to suffer under the Antichrist and the tribulation period. You're going to love Jesus so much that you're going to be willing to go through that, if need be, Um. And then Jesus will rescue us from his wrath, which he brings upon the earth, okay? But no matter what your view of the end times, be willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel. Be willing to suffer for Jesus. Um, the, the big exception has been America. Even in the so-called Christian West, if you were a Christian, but you disagreed on some non-essential area with other so-called Christians, you usually got persecuted, okay? So even Western civilization has had a history of persecuting Christians, whether it's Catholic versus Protestant or whatever it may be, and, uh, but throughout the world. Uh, I mean, right now, Africa is a much more... Christian continent than North America, by far. About 47% of Africans now profess to be Bible-believing Christians. Yet, uh, by, by the way, this idea that Christianity is in decline, no, Christianity is growing at a faster rate right now than probably any other time in the history of the church with the possible exception of the book of Acts. The problem is all we think about is Western civilization, where people have political say, have some semblance of political power, okay? And in the West, Europe and America, that's where Christianity is in decline, rapid decline, okay? Um, but everywhere else on the planet Earth, especially in um, uh, Eastern Asian countries, and uh, especially in African countries, and Central and South American countries, Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds. But when most of the governments are Marxist or Muslim, it means these Christians, like Nigeria is about 50% Muslim, 50% Christian. 
So guess who's getting slaughtered? By Boko Haram, the, the Muslim terrorist group out there. And our media just wasn't reporting it. And the, 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 the daughters, the Christian gals, they get taken, um, get taken captive and sold into sex slavery to the Muslims. The only, the only time, one of the few times when the major American media reported on it was when a, a bishop, a Nigerian bishop, got so fed up. He said, look, start defending you. They're burning down our churches. They're stealing our little girls. Start fighting back. And then that got reported because it made it look like, oh, these violent Christians stirring up, stirring up things all over the place. Um, I forget where it was. I was looking at news articles online, and this little girl laying down, kind of looked like she was asleep, dressed like a little princess. And um, I think it was in Indonesia. And uh, but the weird thing, it had a real peaceful look on her face. Problem was, her head was not connected to her body. And I read the article. You had to go on the internet, find out that it was like half a dozen Christian gals and their little dresses were going to their Christian school, and they got slaughtered by Muslims wearing wool masks with machetes. And um, but the article went on to say that the way the mainstream media reported it was that um, violence occurred between Christians and Muslims and six people were killed, as if that tells the whole story. Okay? Um, no, look, we're, we're reaching that time where Jesus talked about where he said, you're going to be hated in all nations because of my name. All of a sudden, we're the bad guys. And we have state governments like our state saying that if your little child wants to have uh, a gender transition, um, probably because their teachers put those ideas in their little, little guy or little gal's heads, and the parents say, no, the government can protect the children from their parents. So God instituted government, he instituted marriage. He instituted the family. Okay. God entrusted the parents over the children, not the government. Okay. And uh, but we live in a in a crazy, crazy time. But whatever the case, uh, the norm for Christians is to be persecuted for their faith. The norm for Christians is to be hated. We got to get over it, brothers and sisters, that in America, you can be a Christian and still be popular. Okay? I mean, I come here and preach the truth, and some of you, after, after we're done, say, thank you, Pastor. I really, really enjoyed your message today. Or, God really spoke to me in your message today. Some of you say amen when I'm preaching. Okay, um, sometimes at conferences, sometimes people will applaud when I speak or another Christian sp uh, preacher speaks. Okay, that's the that's the exception. That's not the norm. A normal day at the office for the Apostle Paul was preaching God's word, and then people bouncing rocks off his head. 
or people scourging his back. And we've been so spoiled here in America that, you know, we think the church is this big and we're going to find out the American church is maybe this big. There's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. The old expression, separating the, the men from the boys. We're going to find out who the real believers are and who the pretenders are. And we're starting to see a little bit of it. There's a few of you here in this church. There's a few who fled Washington State. People, I wrote letters of exemption, religious exemption, that lost their, their military careers and are now in, in states where they feel that they have more freedom. And, um, but um, it's going to get to the point where we're not employable anymore. Let me tell you something. This is not your grandpa's government. Your government doesn't love you anymore. Okay? And, um, and we better get used to that, and we better swallow a reality pill and recognize that we're going to be like Christians in the book of Acts. And you know what? 99 out of every 100 Christians on the planet Earth were probably Christians like in the book of Acts, not like Christians in America, where we've had it so good. Okay? But we, we, the blessings we receive today, this is the blessings of our founding fathers and their commitment to the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. The tank's running empty now. You know, it's, it's easy for me and probably easy for you to read the Old Testament and look at the Jewish people and say, man, they're the chosen people of God. They blew it again. They're worshiping Baal or some false god. How can they be so dumb? Hey, before you say, how can they be so dumb? You know, Israel, God blessed Israel to be a blessing to all nations. God wanted Israel uh, to be a blessing to all nations. And so when you look at Israel, that's like a little part of the other nation. We're just like them. We're just like them. Why did God prosper America? Because of our faith in God. Well, that faith is gone. And we've repeated, instead of learning from Israel's mistakes, okay, um, we got to repeat those mistakes. And... Uh, but basically, we've been spoiled in this country, and it's going to get hot in the kitchen. The day is probably going to come where we're not even going to be able to meet here. So get used to meeting in the homes and flying under the radar, okay? Uh, we got a government that sends federal agents attending church services, okay? And, um, you know... We, we just we just gotta we just gotta love Jesus so much that when things get shaken up here, um, we still cling to Jesus. What is our job? We don't know the exact day or the hour when Jesus is going to return. It's our job to wear the breastplate of faith and love. Faith and love in action is righteousness, and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Jesus will deliver me. Okay, He's going to deliver us. If, you know, even the the. Antichrist and the Satan's wrath unleashing on it. You know, just like Paul, Jesus delivered Paul by allowing him to be executed. 
We looked at that verse last week. So God's going to, if you're a believer, God's going to deliver you. Okay? He can deliver you um, by, you know, if you're suffering, he could take those sufferings from you, or he can deliver you by being with you in the midst of those sufferings, or he can deliver you by bringing you home. But that's the hope of salvation uh, that we have. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for God did not appoint us, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. When, he's, when Jesus is called our Lord, Koryas, in the New Testament, Koryas does not have to mean Yahweh or God. It can mean a human master. But in a religious context, you know, the early church was Jewish, and then the gospel started being preached to the Gentiles like the Thessalonians. There's only room for one Lord, and that's Yahweh. And um, the most common way to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh into Koine Greek when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint couple hundred years before Jesus walked the earth, the most common way to translate Yahweh was Koryas. So in a religious context, when Jesus is called Koryas, when he's called Lord, he's being called Yahweh. And um, we're going to obtain salvation, not just salvation from our sins, but salvation from God's coming wrath through our Lord, Yahweh, Jesus is God, uh, our Lord, even Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, Christ, he is the Jewish Messiah. The ultimate Jewish king who will come back to rescue Israel when all nations on earth invade Israel in the last days. Just read Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 5. But our Lord Jesus Christ, we're told something about him, who died for us. Who died for us. Yeah, like Paul talks about, you know, most of us wouldn't even have a friend who would die for us. Yet while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, so whether we're alive when Jesus comes back or we die before that time, we should live together um, with him. And so... Uh, whether we die, whether we die first or live until Jesus returns, we live together with Jesus. Okay? And then Paul says in verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify each other, encourage each other to live godly lives, comfort each other uh, just as you also are doing. So the comfort that we should bring to each other, even though things are going to get ugly before Christ returns, we know our king will come and he will rescue us. That's the reason why the, the, the Disney films used to be so good. Because uh, like C.S. Lewis said, God giving us, create, our creator created us in his image, so we're creative and we're storytellers. And from our creativity, we have this idea of, of telling stories. Walt Disney was a great storyteller. And you'd have the princess was being tormented by a dragon, but she knew that someday her prince would return. 
and slay the dragon and rescue her. Okay? And the success of good storytelling, like Disney used to be, not the politically correct transgender, you know, Marxist Disney films that are coming out today. Um, you want to watch those movies, go ahead, but just keep a Bible by your side and critique it point by point. But deep down inside, there's a longing for our king to come back and to rescue us from the evil one. Okay? And, um, and so at the second coming, Jesus will return to rescue his people, and he'll bring judgment on those who oppose him and oppose his people. But Jesus died for us. First John one twenty nine. we don't have time to look at it, but John the Baptist could look at Jesus and point and say, Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice who took our punishment for us on the cross of Calvary. The only way we could be forgiven, a totally just God cannot forgive sin unless it's been paid for in full. And all sin, even the smallest sin, is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, God. So if there's going to be a substitute sacrifice, the substitute sacrifice has to be ultimately worthy. Has to be God. But in order, for the sacrifice has to die. In order to be able to die and to represent man, God the Son had to become a man. Jesus died for our sins. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15. Paul talking about Jesus, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus died for us. The least we can do is to live for him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. The Apostle Peter says this, talking about Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And so Jesus bore our sins in his own body when he was nailed to the tree, nailed to the cross. He died for our sins. And then 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just. He is the just one for the unjust. That's us. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive, raised by the Spirit. Okay? And, um, and so Christ, died once for all for the sins of mankind. That's why we, unlike the, the Roman Catholic Church down the block, we don't have a Sunday Mass, a reoffering of the sacrifice of Christ over and over. Jesus died once for all for the sins of mankind. And they say, well, well, that's one sacrifice, but it's reoffered. 
You know, just read the book of Hebrews. Not only does it say one sacrifice, but he said he offered himself once for all for the sins of mankind. So we say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you notice, I'm not holding up the host. I'm not saying, behold the host, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That's why when I go to Catholic church, you know, I had to go there for my grandson's wedding. I don't walk down the center aisle because I'm not genuflecting before the host. I'm not genuflecting before Bill Gates or Joe Biden or Donald Trump for that matter. I'm going to genuflect is before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He died for me. He is the perfect, almighty, all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. We rebelled against him and fell, and he provided salvation for us through his son, his beloved son. I'll bow before Jesus. You need to bow before Jesus, okay? Um, nobody else. Only King Jesus. So uh, so we don't take comfort in the things of this world. When things get bad, we need to remember Jesus is coming back. When things are good, remember Jesus is coming back. Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope and comfort. I want to close with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. This is the Apostle Peter the fisherman who knew Jesus. He's probably the only apostle around Jesus' age, and uh, the rest were probably teenagers. Maybe James, the older brother of John, who was the first of the apostles to be executed. Uh, Stephen was the first martyr, but James was beheaded. James and Stephen wasn't an apostle. James, the son of Zebedee, John's older brother, he might have been close to Jesus' age. But... In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of theology to unpack there. He even got a hint at the Trinity right there, two of the three persons of the Trinity. Blessed be the God, I'm a fisherman, and he's, he's just theologically sound. And he was untrained, according to the, the Pharisees because he didn't go to their schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Yeah, he, he happened to study under an unorthodox rabbi named Jesus who happened to be God. So he went to the three-year Bible college of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, made us born again to a living hope. There's that word hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is in the empty tomb. That Jesus who conquered death, when he rose from the dead, has conquered death, man's greatest enemy as well. And uh, we have hope in Jesus. And that hope is to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, the testing of our faith that proves the reality of our faith. If things are going good and you're praising Jesus, your faith hasn't been tested yet. Phil Fernandez looks pretty good, I would assume, in the eyes of many Christians, because when I preach, people say amen. Nobody's ever put a gun to my head. Phil Fernandez's faith has yet to be tested. Your faith has yet to be tested. Will we stand tall with the Nigerian church, our Nigerian brothers and sisters, if Boko Haram was coming after us? But we have an inheritance that will not fade away because Jesus is our hope. And the genuineness of our faith gets proven as tested through the fires of trials. And it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, and then Peter says this, whom you have not seen, you love. That's powerful. Could Peter saw him. God the Son became a man. Peter broke bread with him. Peter hugged him. Peter, Peter walked with him. But now Peter's about to die around 67 AD. He knows a lot of believers have never even met Jesus face to face in Jesus' physical body. The revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, unlike Peter, we haven't seen Jesus face to face. But like Peter's readers, we still love Jesus, even though we haven't seen him face to face yet. Now that day will come. Bill Gates doesn't think it's going to come. Many of our leaders in America and throughout the world, they don't think it's going to come. But he will come. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, last day there's going to be mockers saying, where's the sign of his coming? He will come. He will come. And uh, it's not going to be. You know, we got little babies in the church. Their parents hold them real tight as they should. You got to protect them and all. And the first time Jesus came, he was a little baby like that in a manger. In the manger. Uh, when Jesus comes back, he came to seek and save that which was lost, to die for us. When he comes back, he's coming back for his kingdom. He's not going to be a little helpless baby. He's going to be a grown-up Jewish man with his glorified resurrection body. He's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though he became one of us. But he will come. He will return and take his stand upon the earth 
He'll shepherd the nations with an iron rod. I don't care what the mockers, the powerful people of this world say right now. Jesus is coming back. That's our hope. The return of the Lord Jesus. And and people could say, well, you guys never saw him face to face. You never saw him. Having not seen him, we love him. And even though we don't see him now, we believe in him and trust in him and we walk with him. Walk, I don't care how bad things get, walk with King Jesus. Things are going to get ugly upon the earth just like Paul told the Thessalonians. But we have hope because King Jesus is coming back and he is our hope. And by the way, um, when this world wants to crush us because we believe in Jesus, we need to not only stand firm in the faith, but we need to get outside of our comfort zone. We've got to preach Jesus to others. Our neighbors don't. If they don't have Jesus, they don't have hope. And who's going to talk to them about Jesus if we believers aren't going to? Let's share the hope that we have in Jesus, the only real hope the world will ever have. Let's share the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's share our hope with others, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our relatives. Preach Jesus. Worship Jesus, preach Jesus. You know what? That's the whole reason why you're here. That's the whole reason why you were created. It's the whole reason why I was created. So we just, you know, the world's going to do what it's going to do. I was created. You were created to worship the triune God. You were created to proclaim the good news of salvation through Jesus. That's why we exist. That's just what we do. Because Jesus is our hope. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, uh, I pray that the, the fathers would enjoy the day and their families and their loved ones, but I pray that we just not lose track of the fact that the things of this world are, are crumbling and coming apart. And apart from the Lord Jesus, there would be no hope. And so your son, the Lord Jesus, is our hope. May we not only cling to that hope during the difficult times and even during the good times, but may we have the courage, and we need courage right now, a lot more courage than we've had before, May we have the courage to share that hope with our non-believing friends and neighbors and relatives. May we share Jesus and live to build his kingdom, not our own, and live to glorify Jesus, not ourselves. May we live for King Jesus and proclaim the good news of salvation through him until he takes a stand upon the earth to make things right. May we proclaim to the world that God the Son became a man, 
And Christ has died for our sins. Christ has risen to conquer death for us. And he will return. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, everybody. Have a great day there. Oh, the pot, is that potluck today? Next, oh, pot, next week is a potluck. I was just reminding.